back, I went to Napa Valley with a group of pastors from our denomination, and uh, as a group of Presbyterian pastors does, we went wine tasting. We visited a couple of vineyards. One of them was called Dariush, and it was epic. The stone for the, the whole place had been imported from Persia, which was the homeland of the owner. It was absolutely stunning inside and out. But what I remember most about our trip to Dariush was our tour guide. I, I don't remember his name, but I do remember that throughout our tour, he referred to the owner of the vineyard, Dariush Kaledi, as my master. He would say, my master imported this stone from Persia. My master loves this particular flavor palette. My master had this sculpture commissioned in honor of his mother. They spoke of the, the deep respect and honor that this tour guide had for his boss. Now, it might have been traditional in Persian culture to do that, but let's just say it was a little bit weird and uh, disconcerting for this group of 21st century Westerners. I mean, can you imagine if I started referring to our senior pastor, Pastor Mark, as my master? Actually, I think he'd quite like it. Today, we're continuing our journey through Luke's gospel, his account of the life of Jesus. We're going to be looking at two passages that talk about people in authority. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20. You're welcome to grab a Bible, turn there now. If you grab one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 879. So Luke chapter 20, page 879 of the pew Bibles. Uh, in case you haven't met me, my name's Ellis. I'm one of the pastors here. Last week, Pastor Mark shared with us that Jesus' authority was being challenged by the religious leaders. And, and this week and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders continue as Jesus talks to them about who has authority and what that means for us. So in Luke 20, we're going to begin in verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this parable has several main personalities in it. The vineyard, the owner, the tenants, the servants, and the son. And at first glance, as with all of Jesus' parables, it seems like it might just be a nice story, but as we know, all of Jesus' parables pointed to a deeper meaning. Here's the table of the main characters to help you interpret this parable. The master of the vineyard is God the Father, who planted the vineyard. The vineyard is his people, Israel, and he delegated authority for managing the vineyard to tenants. That is the leaders of Israel, the kings and the religious leaders. And then he sent servants to hold them to account. Those servants are the prophets, but the leaders of Israel killed the prophets. So the master decides to send his son, who is Jesus, hoping that they will respect the legal authority that the son of the owner has. Now, at this point, 
where I left off the parable, we're left wondering, what will the tenants do to the son? That is, what will the leaders of Israel do to Jesus? And Jesus tells us, let's keep reading, verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, that's the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? See, the tenants know this is the son. They know he stands to inherit the vineyard. And so they kill him. And right here, Jesus is predicting what is going to happen to him in the coming days. He's saying that the leaders of Israel are going to kill him. But not just that, they're going to kill him knowing full well that he is the son of God. This has huge implications on the Jewish leaders at the time. Jesus is saying that what they are about to do is entirely deliberate. And he finishes that second verse we just read, verse 15, with a rhetorical question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus is forcing his listeners to grapple with the conundrum that faces God. The God who's chosen his people, who's set them apart, who's delivered them from slavery, given them the promised land, called leaders out from them to lead his people. Those leaders have stoned and killed the prophets, and now they are about to kill with full knowledge and intent the very Son of God. And the question is, what will God do? Let's keep reading to find out. Verse 16. He, that's the master, will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. God says that he will come and execute judgment on the leaders of God's people. He will destroy them. They have had their chance. Three times he sent servants, but they killed them. All of them. And he had every right to execute judgment at that point. But he tried one more thing. He sent his own son, hoping that they might see who he is and respect him as a result. And yet they killed him, knowing full well that he was the son of God. And so their time is done. And the leadership of God's people will be passed to others, namely to the apostles and the future leaders of the church, which is now God's people. And it is clear that the leaders who were listening to this parable understood that that was what Jesus was saying. Listen to the words as we pick up the second half of verse 16. When they, those who were listening, heard this, they said, surely not. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? And this comes from the psalm that Pastor Gunnar read earlier in the service. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus interprets it. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The leaders cannot believe that God would do such a thing. And yet Jesus confirms it. He looks directly at them. He quotes from Psalm 118 regarding a cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone, if you don't know what it is, it is the stone that's put at the base of two perpendicular walls, joining the walls together to create strength and stability for the whole structure. 
And Jesus is explaining that the very son of the master, whom the leaders will have rejected, will become the cornerstone of the people of God in the future. Jesus will become the foundation upon which the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, united together, will be built. That is the church, and Jesus is the cornerstone. And anyone, Jesus says, who does not acknowledge the foundational authority that he has will be crushed and broken. This declaration of the total authority of Jesus and the destruction of all who oppose him really got the religious leaders worked up. Take a look at what happens next. Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So the religious leaders know that Jesus has told this parable against them. And just like the tenants in the parable, what did they do? They sought to kill Jesus. But the only thing that was holding them back was the fear of revolt from the people. See, the people respected Jesus, and the leaders were afraid that if they killed Jesus without some help from the Romans, they would be unable to contain the people's anger. And so they decided to become a little bit more devious. They, they sent some spies to try and catch Jesus out. They, they wanted Jesus to say something that would allow them to take him to the Roman authorities, to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and charge him with a crime so that the Romans could kill him instead of them having to kill him. And so these spies came to Jesus. And here's what they said, verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They start by buttering Jesus up. Oh, teacher, we know you always tell the truth. We, we know you don't get swayed by people who flatter you. You truly teach God's ways. Ironically, if what they says is true, this buttering up of Jesus is kind of pointless, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> they go ahead with it, and they ask Jesus a question to try and catch him out. And here's the question. Say, should we pay taxes to the Roman emperor or not? Now, as a reminder, God's people living in Israel at this time were being governed by the Roman Empire, and as part of that government, they were required to pay taxes to the emperor, Caesar. Now, one tax in particular that the Jewish people were required to pay was the tributum capitis, or poll tax. This was a tax on non-Roman citizens, like the Jews, living in the Roman Empire. And at the time, it amounted to one denarius. That was a single silver coin around one day's wages for a laborer. Now, this tax was highly resented by the Jews. Later on, the Christian writer Tertullian called it a badge of slavery. For many Jews, they saw it as a sign that, that Rome had ultimate authority over them, the people of God. Now, the Jewish people, they suspected that Jesus might be about to overthrow the authority of Rome. And so, 
The spies who come to Jesus realize that if, if Jesus were to say, yes, you do have to pay the tax, it would imply that he probably wasn't going to overthrow Rome, and therefore his support from the people would falter. However, if Jesus were to say, no, you don't have to pay the tax, then the Jewish leaders could march him straight down to Pontius Pilate and say that he is rebelling against Roman rule. And so Jesus was caught. What could he do? Well, let's hear how he responds. Verse 23. But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Jesus responds to this trick question with a question. He asks the spies to show him a coin. And he says to them, whose image is on the coin? The, the emperor, Caesar's, they, they responded. And with the next statement, Jesus both answers their question and in the same breath escapes any charge of rebellion. But to understand it, we have to go back to the very first chapter of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, where we read these words, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We human beings bear the image of God. In fact, we're unique in all creation. No other created being bears God's image. And Jesus is going to use this truth to answer the spy's question. Jesus says, show me a coin. And they, he says, whose image is on it? They say, Caesar's. He says, since this coin has the image of the emperor on it, it should be given to the emperor. And since you have the image of God on you, you must give yourself to God. In effect, Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes. But more importantly, you must remember that ultimately you sit under the authority of God, above that of Rome. And in so doing, he leaves these spies in stunned silence. They marvel at what he says, realizing that this simple explanation both honors the Roman authorities and yet, yet proclaims that they don't have ultimate authority over God's people. God alone has ultimate authority over his people. And in this way, Jesus' answer satisfies both the Romans and the Jewish people. So these two passages, the, uh, the parable and the taxation question, they teach us three very important things about authority. And I want to take a look as we close this message at each of those three things in turn. So first, they teach us that God has ultimate authority. Both of these passages teach us that God is ultimately in authority over all human beings. In, in the first one, he's the master of the vineyard who holds the tenants accountable for how they treat his servants and his son. And ultimately, God makes sure, the master makes sure that the vineyard is sustained. He is in authority. And in the second passage, 
God is the one who has created all human beings in His image. And despite what, what we have done to try and mar that image of God in us, that image still remains. Just as a coin bears the image of an emperor, so we bear the image of the supreme emperor. God sits on the throne above all powers. He has ultimate authority. That's the first point. Here's the second. God delegates authority. In the parable, God delegated the authority of running the vineyard to tenants. That is, God delegated the authority of leading his people to leaders, to kings, to priests, to religious leaders, and he held those leaders accountable for their actions. When they led badly, such as by killing the prophets and eventually his son, God deposed them and replaced them with new leadership, his apostles. And that apostolic authority has carried forward to the leaders of the church today. God has delegated authority to them. One week ago, I attended our presbytery meeting. It's the meeting of all the churches in the Pacific Northwest that are part of our denomination. Our denomination is the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Now, at this meeting, as we ordinarily do, every time we get together, we get together three times a year, we examined three persons who were seeking to become pastors at churches in our presbytery. And this was the end of a long culmination of an examination process. And in the meeting, these three persons preached, and then we examined them each individually on their character, their beliefs, and practices. We asked them questions in front of a room of 100 people, such as, can you share with us how God has humbled you? And how would you deal with an elder who differed on your belief regarding the charismatic gifts? And how would you counsel a same-sex-attracted Christian who is committed to celibacy and wants to identify as gay? Really easy questions, right? We take seriously our role as leaders of the church to make sure that all of the leaders of the church are not acting like the wicked tenants in this parable. We want to do all we can to make sure that the pastors and elders in our denomination are held to account for their leadership. So, God delegates authority for leadership of his people. That's what the first parable tells us. In the second passage we read, not the first parable, the first passage in the parable, in the second passage where Jesus talks about taxation, God tells us that he also delegates authority for leadership of all people to kings and other rulers. Not only has God delegated authority to religious leadership, but he's delegated authority to secular leadership. As Paul later wrote, in his letter to the Romans, for there is no authority except from God, and those governing authorities that exist have been instituted by God. God has delegated authority not only to religious leadership, but also to secular leadership. And if you, like a lot of us, think that he might have delegated authority to the wrong people because they aren't doing such a great job, then let me remind you that the Roman emperors who were ruling at the time Jesus was speaking and Paul was writing were doing a much, much worse job than our leaders. 
Caesar Tiberius, who reigned while Jesus ministered, was known for his cruelty and depravity. Here were were some things he was known for. He was known for throwing his opponents off cliffs. He was known for raping sacrificial attendants. And he was known for abusing small children. That's horrific. And yet, difficult though it might be for us to understand, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that God delegated authority to that awful man. And if that's true, we must concede God's choice to delegate authority to our leaders today, as unworthy as we might find them to be. So first, God has ultimate authority. Second, God delegates authority. Third, finally, this is the tricky one, we must submit to authority. Foremost, we must submit to the authority of God and of his son Jesus. That's what the the parable tells us. The, The tenants in the parable did not do that. They rebelled against the authority of the master and his son, and as a result, they were destroyed. And if you rebel against the authority of God, the same thing will happen to you. The consequences of rebelling against God are the same today as they were back then. Destruction. And yet every single one of us has rebelled against God's authority. In fact, it's in our very nature to rebel against the authority of God. But thanks be to God that he has poured out that destruction, not upon us, but upon his son, Jesus. The leaders of Israel thought that by killing the son of God that they were doing their will. But in fact, they ended up doing God's will. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, born of a woman, born under the law, to be the propitiation. That is the sacrifice that reconciles us to God, to be the propitiation for our sin. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The resounding testimony of the scriptures is that in spite of our rebellion against God's authority, we do not stand condemned. The consequence of destruction that we rightly deserved has been poured out upon the Son of God. He took the consequence upon himself so that we might stand free of it, welcomed into God's family, adopted as his own sons and daughters. And if you're here and you would admit that you're still living in rebellion against God's authority. I want to implore you, come to him today. Receive the forgiveness that is on offer for you. Be reconciled to God. He loves you. He did not send Jesus to condemn you, but to save you. Return to him. And in a moment, I'm going to pray and invite you to do just that. So ultimately, we must submit to God's authority. But Jesus also teaches us that we must submit to human authorities. Now, whenever this topic of submission to human authorities comes up, the concept of abuse can be at the forefront of many people's minds. And I just want to make a short comment on that. Abuse of authority is condemned throughout the Bible. We saw that in the parable. 
The tenants abused their authority. They were destroyed. If you are abusing your authority, repent now before the consequences get more severe. And if you are being abused by a person in authority, don't allow it to continue. Appeal to the next level of authority to intervene. And sometimes that's going to mean appealing to law enforcement. God has delegated authority to the police, to to the legal system to prevent abuse. Appeal to their authority if you are being abused. So, Jesus teaches us we should submit to human authorities. God has delegated authority to humans. God calls us to submit to those authorities. And putting aside the case of abuse, what does that look like? Okay, in the church, let's start there. In the church, what does it look like to submit to authority? For us, in our denomination, it looks like membership. Every time we welcome new members, they answer this question. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session? Now, a lot of people have a really hard time with this question, and yet it's simply following the command of Jesus to submit ourselves to the authorities that God has appointed. And don't worry, your pastors and elders take a very similar vow. We promise subjection to our fellow pastors and elders. We are all called to submit to the authorities that God has instituted in his church. So, God calls us to submit to human authorities in the the church, but God also calls us to submit to human authorities in all areas of life. Whether that authority is in the realm of politics, or our workplace, or our school, or our family, God has instituted those authorities too. And not all of them do a great job. In fact, remember Caesar? He was doing an awful job, right? Yet, Jesus still calls us to submit to those authorities. Now, this submission must always be in line with submission to Jesus. He's the the ultimate authority. If we're called by those in authority to do something that would violate our commitment to Jesus, we don't have to do it. In fact, when the governor of the state of Washington told us not to sing songs of worship during the pandemic— we chose to sing songs of worship anyway. But when those who've been delegated authority by God call us to do something that is not in conflict with our submission to Christ, we're called to submit to that authority, even if we disagree with it. When I played college rugby, we had a head coach who I initially respected purely out of his position as the head coach at a a prestigious college and the fact that I was one of the youngest players on the team. But then we went on a tour of British Columbia for two weeks. And during that time, I witnessed him saying and doing things outside of games, outside of practice time, in in his personal life, because we had a a lot of opportunity to see each other's personal lives. And these things caused me to lose a great deal of respect for him. Now, it wouldn't be right for me to share what those things were, but they were significant enough that many members of the team were talking to one another about how uncomfortable they felt and how much respect he had lost. And yet, I knew that he was still the head coach. And I knew that as such, unless he asked me to do something in direct contradiction to my submission to Christ, I was still called to submit to him. What he did in his personal life was not my responsibility. 
My responsibility was to submit to his leadership on the field and at practice, and that's what I did. It was hard at times. He'd lost a lot of my respect, but I knew that this was where God had called me, and I knew that God had put him in a position of authority over me, and I was called to submit to that authority. And so, I want to leave you with a question. Where are you struggling to submit to a God-ordained authority, and what might God be asking you to do about it? Perhaps it's your employer. Perhaps it's a, a teacher. Maybe it's your parent if you're young. Maybe it's a political authority. Whatever it may be, unless you are being asked to do something that is in violation of your submission to Christ, we're called to submit. So where are you struggling to submit? And what is God asking you to do about it? Let's take it to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Well, first of all, we come to you today and we choose to submit to your ultimate authority. And if there are people here who have not yet submitted their lives to Jesus, would I ask that you would stir their hearts right now? And if that's you, if you're here today and you feel your heart being stirred, the Lord calling you to submit to him, perhaps for the first time or to return to him, then I invite you to echo these words in your heart. Sorry, Father, that I've rejected your authority. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the consequence of that upon yourself. Please, Holy Spirit, come into my life and enable me and empower me to submit to the authority of God and to follow Jesus all the days of my life. And for all of us, Lord, we come to you and we, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to convict us where we have been in rebellion against God-ordained authority. Whatever sphere of life that might be in, Lord, convict us, reveal to us where our heart has been hardened, where we have turned away, where we have sinned. Forgive us for that sin. Thank you that Jesus already paid the price. And out of the freedom that is ours in Christ, empower us and enable us to submit to be good citizens, good family members, good employees, to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city and the nation in which we find ourselves. Holy Spirit, come, give us your strength. We need it. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Yes, Jesus, your name is above all other names. Your power and authority is next to no other. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are seated high above all others. And we worship and magnify and glorify your holy name today, now and forever. And as a result of that, we submit to you and your lordship, and we submit to those you to whom you have delegated authority knowing that you are ultimately in control and that one day you will reign in perfect peace and justice and we look forward to that day and in the meantime we say come Lord Jesus your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven we pray in Jesus name amen well, great to be with you this morning. Uh, we have a prayer team who are available. If you need prayer for anything, they're going to be in the prayer chapel, which is around the corner behind that stained glass over there. Please go and receive prayer. If, if you're new, Pastor Julie's going to be at the Woodwall. She'd love to meet you. She's got a, a gift for you. And if you are uh, checking out Chapel Hill thinking, what's this church all about? We have a class called Chapel Hill 101 that starts at 1030 in just 30 minutes, it's going to be uh, down in the, in the diner, which is downstairs. Pastor Julie can give you directions at the Woodwall. Would love to invite you to come to that if you're interested to know more about who we are at Chapel Hill. I want to leave you with a blessing. The way we receive a blessing around here is to raise up our hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.